Welcome to Food Psych, a weekly podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and body liberation. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor. Join me as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 123 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Carissa Enneking, the creator of the blog FatGirlFlow.com and a body acceptance activist and plus-size lifestyle expert. We talked about the current state of plus-size fashion, the impact of mental health struggles on eating behavior, healthism, and the various sneaky forms of diet culture, the long and winding road to recovery, and so much more. I can't wait to share our conversation with you in just a moment. It's a really good one. But first, I'll answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Courtney B., who writes, Sometimes I feel the need to restrict from a financial standpoint. When I look at certain diets that have you follow strict formulas as to how much protein and vegetables to have per meal, I can't help but think, if only I could commit to this, think of how much money I could save. And therefore, when I indulge in something that I wasn't planning on, like if I bring my lunch to work and then some friends in the office want to go out, I want to be social and enjoy a meal with them, but I feel quote-unquote bad for going off plan, quote-unquote, and not eating what I quote should have. Or if I pack a salad, but then come lunchtime, I'm just really not feeling it, so I go to get a sandwich, then I still feel bad for not eating what I quote-unquote should. I guess I'm wondering if there's any advice you could give to those who are trying to live intuitively but still feel the need to restrict due to finances. So thanks, Courtney, for that great question. And before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So yeah, my heart really goes out to you, Courtney, and anyone else who's struggling with this issue with finances, feeling like they're standing in the way of eating intuitively. So I just want to say like, I have lots of compassion for this. And I think that for anyone who's struggling with this issue, looking at the role that the diet mentality is playing in your desire to save money on food is a really important thing to do. Because obviously, we all have different financial situations. There's different realities that people live with. And I don't want to suggest that anyone who's living in poverty or really struggling has more capacity than they think they do. But I think in many cases, and it sounds like maybe in Courtney's case here, there actually is some more financial room than you might think. And the diet mentality is really playing a huge role here. Because I see that in your question. You know, I see you say, like, if only I could follow the strict formula as to how much protein and vegetables to have, I would save so much money. But it's like, is that really the reason? Or is the diet mentality part of you really looking for a reason to restrict and using finances as an excuse, right? How much of that is true versus how much is real financial reality that you do need to watch what you spend? And I have a feeling that it is, as it is for most people, a little of both, right? And so really looking at your budget and seeing where you actually have more flexibility that you could give yourself, especially when you're working to make peace with food, it can really be helpful to treat food as a fun expense, like part of your entertainment budget, not just as a necessity, right? Or as a medical expense even, right? Like part of your health budget. Because it really is both of those things when you think about it. It's 
part of pleasure and satisfaction, right? That's a huge aspect of intuitive eating. And when you're first learning to make peace with food, I think it's really important to give food its due as a potential source of pleasure and joy. And so, you know, if that means you don't go to the movies one week or you have a budget for whatever type of pleasure and entertainment that you like having in your life, maybe there's some trade-offs you can make where you make food a bigger part of that budget right? Like entertainment, going out to lunch with people, going out to dinner could be a stand-in for some of those other sources of pleasure and entertainment, right? Or, you know, if you have a budget for health, for say like wellness products at the drugstore or things like that, you could think about what of that is sort of discretionary health spending that you might want to divert to food and to pleasurable experiences with eating. Because again, it is part of your mental health, right? To have a strong relationship with food and to be exploring a new openness to food that you didn't have when you were in a more restrictive mindset. Right. So looking at ways, you know, places in your budget that you could divert some funds to food and really make that a priority, make that something you invest in. Right. And side note for this, like for budgeting and seeing where your money goes, I really recommend getting a personal finance app of some kind that can help automatically track things and help you create a budget so that you can really see so that you're not just guessing. I think a lot of people and I've done this when I was on a limited budget, too, are like, "Okay, I don't have a lot of money coming in, so I just need to spend as little as possible in every single area. And that's not actually the best way to manage your finances, right? Because when you actually get a sense of where everything's going, what you have to work with and what you're spending money on, then you can make more informed decisions about where you actually want to put the limited money that you have, right? And there might be areas that you're spending that you're not even aware of, or you might have so much guilt for spending, as it sounds like you do, right? Guilt for spending money on going out to lunch, for example, that you're undermining your relationship with food, making it harder to have an intuitive relationship with food. And there's actually money that you have that you're diverting to something else that you maybe don't need to be, right? Or if you were more intentional about it, you could you could look at that and think, okay, what do I actually want to be spending this money on? And would it be better used for these pleasurable experiences like lunch with friends or whatever? You know, so really taking a look at your finances, I think, and you may have already done this. I don't know from the question, but I just think in general, a lot of people with budgeting tend to be like, I should just spend as little as possible and then feel guilty when they spend any money, right? And certainly we all have financial constraints and realities, but I think just being aware of like, what do you really have and what's really your budget? What's the wiggle room you have there? is super important with this. And then back to the point about intuitive eating and especially bringing lunches to work and things like that, I think like trying to pack lunches that will actually give you pleasure rather than what you think you should eat is super important. And that goes back to the diet mentality that I was talking about earlier, right? Like really getting underneath this desire to restrict from a financial standpoint and saying like, okay, what part of this is the diet mentality still controlling me? And what can I push back on? Right. And like the choice to pack a salad. Why is that? Why are you deciding to pack a salad? And if you end up wanting a sandwich instead, if that happens frequently, maybe it's better to just pack the sandwich in the first place. Right. And if you get ingredients and make a sandwich at home, that's certainly going to be a lot cheaper than going out to buy a sandwich. And especially when you've already packed a salad and you're just going to throw away the salad. Right. So thinking about what you're really going to want, what's really going to bring you pleasure and satisfaction can, in many cases, actually help you save money in the sense that you're not feeling really lackluster about what you packed and ending up buying something else and spending more money on it. Right. Or wasting 
eating food. So I think, again, it's the diet mentality. It goes back to that. How is it controlling you? How is it getting in your way? And how is it actually making you spend more money than you need to be, right? Like I know for myself, if I have to pack a lunch to take somewhere, I just know that I almost never am going to want a homemade salad. And I don't really want salads that often either unless it's like a hot day or I'm just in the mood for one. But most of the time I'm not in the mood for one. So I know that about myself. And I know that if I'm going to take a lunch somewhere, I'll probably make a sandwich, right? Or dinner leftovers like pasta or rice with meat and veggies or something that I can bring in a Tupperware container and maybe heat up. Or if it's not, if there's not a place to heat it up when I'm at a place that I need to bring lunch, bring something like cold pizza or, you know, a dish like a pasta dish that is good cold too, right? So thinking about what's actually going to bring you pleasure and joy and being realistic with yourself, not trying to force yourself into a box of what you think you quote unquote should eat because it's healthy, right? And that is the diet mentality. So yeah, I think, you know, looking at the ways that the diet mentality is showing up in your relationship with food and finances and kind of muddying that relationship is really important in your quest to make peace with food. So I hope that helps. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, visit christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And to get a whole library of answers from me about the nuts and bolts of intuitive eating, plus the chance to ask me any question you want and have it answered every month, you can join my intuitive eating online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, you can learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. And now through October, I'll be giving 10% of the proceeds to hurricane relief efforts. So when you join, you'll also be helping the people affected by hurricanes Harvey and Irma. We're brought to you today by M.M. Lafleur. For the woman who wants to look impeccable at work but has better things to do than sift through uninspiring racks of pantsuits, the solution is M.M. Lafleur. They take the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling to today's busy professional woman. Each M.M. Lafleur customer works one-on-one -on -one with an M.M. stylist to build her work wardrobe in a systematic and personalized way. All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an M.M. stylist will send you a personalized bento box with four to six staples and accessories. They sent me a sample box and I really have to say they nailed my style. I don't dress up that often anymore because now I work entirely from home, but when I do have an important meeting or speaking gig, I like to look my best and I like to wear things that are like simple but understated but interesting, you know, kind of fashion forward and things that make me feel powerful. And that's totally how their clothes feel, very powerful and elegant and just simple, no nonsense. And they offer plus sizes as well as straight sizes, which is why I'm so happy they're helping to support the podcast. Once your bento arrives, you'll have four days to try everything on. Then keep what you like and send the rest back. You won't be charged anything up front, and you only pay for the items you keep. Shipping is free both ways, and it's completely free to try because they're not a subscription service, so there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself, visit mmbento.com. That's M-M-B-E-N-T-O.com. We're also brought to you today by Casper. Sleep, as you know, is a really important part of self-care and well-being. So that's why I love the Casper mattress, because since I got mine almost two years ago, I've slept so much better than I ever did before. 
It's an obsessively engineered mattress that features a marriage between foam layers for ideal firmness, so it has just the right sink and just the right bounce. It's also at a shockingly fair price because Casper sells direct to consumers rather than going through a middleman. And if you've ever gone shopping for a mattress, you know what a horrible experience that can be. So I love just being able to order a mattress online and have it come and be perfect. They offer free shipping and returns to the U.S. and Canada and a 100-night trial with free no-hassle returns if you're not happy. With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars, it's quickly becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. Plus, it's designed, developed, and assembled right here in the U.S. You can get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com psych and using promo code psych, that's P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout. That's casper.com slash psych, and then enter the promo code psych at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Carissa Enneking. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. So I actually feel like I had a very kind of normal relationship with food growing up, whatever normal means, right? (laughs) In comparison to a lot of people that I talk to, my mom was on a diet most of my life, but she really kind of let us eat however we wanted to eat. And she didn't have a ton of rules around eating. And it's interesting because my parents grew up pretty poor. They didn't have a lot. And so they kind of always lived by this philosophy that they really wanted us to be kids and enjoy our childhood, you know, which is great, which is, a, I mean, that's an amazing thing to give your children. And I think that interestingly enough, that kind of, I wouldn't say freedom is what made me kind of get all messed up with food, but that kind of hands-off approach to not involving kids in food is kind of actually what led me down some weird paths later in life. Mm, Like not being involved in cooking or... Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that my parents really always kind of just had what we needed, which was, uh, that's that's the dream, right? Like, (laughs) that's, that's what you want. And because they had kind of come from scarcity, we always had everything in our home. And I never really learned to cook for myself, or how to, you know, go to the grocery store for myself, or any of these kind of very basic things that we consider in the process of consumption of food. And so those are still things that I kind of struggle with. And it's funny how all of that you can kind of trace back to your childhood and you're just like, man, nobody's getting away with anything through their childhood. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. None of us make it out unscathed, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, I really feel like I had what, what is most people's kind of model dream childhood for food and stuff. And I still made it out with some messed up stuff, of course. Of course. Yeah. What happened (laughs) do you think that that led to that? I think that especially with our family, my 
my dad did a lot of the cooking, which we had, we have, we grew up in a very progressive home. So my dad did most of the cooking and feeding of the family. And my mom was, she was frequently on a diet and also was working late a lot of the time when we were kids. And sometimes her, mood would affect our dinner times, just kind of the atmosphere of how we ate. Or if she came home and she was too tired, she would skip meals and, you know, little things like that. And I think that as I watched my mom's relationship with food kind of develop and see that even in a spot where we feel very kind of normal. It's still very tenuous and weird. I think that, you know, as a child, I picked up on every little piece of that. Yes. I think that's such an important point, you know, that like kids pick up on the modeling. It's not just what your parents say. It's also what they do, right? And it's not just how they treat you. It's how they treat themselves. Right. And I mean, you know, no matter what, if you are... You can do intuitive eating with your kids all day, but if you are on a diet, if your kiddos see a points or something, a points register or placard sitting around the house, they're going to know what's happening. You know, they're going to know what the context behind that is, whether or not you're trying to protect them from it. Totally. Yeah. Kids are smarter than they're given credit for. People don't think they pick up on as much as they really do. Yeah. And I, as a kid, I also, my, though my family was fairly normal, you know, air quotes about food, my mom always was very exercise focused. And uh, I think I got maybe, I think I got my first gym membership when I was about 11. And that's pretty young, you know, <laughs> when I, when I look back on that now, I'm like, oh, 11's kind of a young time to learn how to use weights machine. <laughs> but yeah, our parents, a lot of times are just doing what they think is what's the cultural norm at the time. And that was 20, 25 years ago when gyms and gym memberships and family gym memberships were getting big. And so we were in there and it was kind of like exercise is this cure all. We are going to exercise our way to morality, you know? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I've ever achieved that. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I certainly haven't. I mean, it's interesting, that idea of exercising together as a family. Was there, were you shamed for your body size or told that your body size needed to change? And was it sort of an effort to like police your size or was it more coming from your parents and them wanting to police their size and make their bodies supposedly good or some combination of those things? Well, you know, I think that in our family, we kind of joke about this. We're all very typically healthy human beings. We just, you know, we don't have a lot of genetic ailments or anything like that. My mom and dad kind of tease each other because they kind of say that we have this mentality of like eat or be eaten, you know, (laughs) and and it's just, it's one of those ideas that, you know, we come from healthy stock and we're just, we're healthy people. And my, both my parents kind of have low tolerance for um, illness and have just, there's a, 
if you've ever been around someone who has very little patience with illness and with people who need, you know, more assistance, it's very apparent. And when I was younger, I don't know that I was necessarily shamed for my body looking different than other people's. But I do feel that, you know, I was a pretty anxious kid. And that was a big deal in our house. It was kind of like, okay, well, something's something's wrong with you. I mean, it was like, you're not falling in line. And something's not quite right. And that means you need to exercise and you need to watch your consumption and you need to make sure that, you know, you're at this peak point of health, just like the rest of us. <laughs> mm, interesting. So kind of a healthism. Yes, very much so. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that it's interesting, too, that anxiety was treated with exercise. Like, right. <laughs> so that was going to be the cure-all. Right. I mean, I think we all hear so much talk about how you should be exercising for anxiety. But I think that, you know, on the, on the other side of that, we can get so hung up with trying to get rid of these things that, you know, are part of us by forcing our body to do a thing that we're really not doing it any favors. Totally. Yeah, that's such a good point. Like, because there's one thing, I mean, it's one thing to be caring for yourself and taking care of your mental health through certain practices, but then it's another to kind of want to like erase whatever's going on with your mental health instead of accepting like, this is something that I deal with. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And I think that, especially in our culture, where I think that a lot of people are like my family, you know, and I think that we don't like to talk about it. I think that I think it's especially a part of body positivity that we don't talk about very much is that part where we assign this moral value to being a healthy human being to not ever having to put anyone else out because of your existence. You know what I mean? Totally. And the truth is, like, I mean, what is existence if we're not connecting? <laughs> so aren't we kind of naturally always putting people out in some way or another? <laughs> That's a great point. Yeah, because connecting does, it's like you're you're going into someone else's space a little bit, and that's a good thing, actually. You can't all, right. every, not everybody's like walled off in these islands. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm so curious to talk to you about more about that concept of like body positivity and mental health, but I'm curious back to your story, sort of how it went from there. Like, how did you, how was adolescence and after high school and stuff like that? So <laughs> through my adolescence, I think I was about, oh, maybe 10 years old when I first started developing some disordered eating patterns. And I have always cycled through restricting and binging phases. And, you know, when you're very young and it starts, it obviously isn't wildly apparent to a lot of people because I I think that at 10, 12 years old, you don't even really know that you're doing those things. You're just almost kind of doing it as self-preservation. And I think that for most of my life, that's what 
I was doing it as through adolescence and even through my 20s, I think that I really didn't identify that I had an eating disorder for a long time because I thought that my eating patterns were reflecting my anxiety or my health in some way. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of like stomach problems. And of course, now I know that I didn't actually have stomach problems. I was just wildly anxious and also happened to have an eating disorder at the same time, which made me not feel very good. (laughs) But you get into these cyclical patterns and that doesn't ever heal itself. So throughout my adolescence, I would go through these big phases of restricting and then binging. I was very athletic in my adolescence. I really enjoyed sports and uh, moving my body. And I think that I was able to mask a lot of what was happening with me with eating and with emotionality around eating with athletics. And at some point in my early 20s, kind of just couldn't do it anymore. And my mental health started deteriorating pretty quickly. And I started having, instead of just anxiety, more panic attacks and became fairly agoraphobic. And at some point, you're kind of you're kind of at your worst and you think, okay, I'm just going to start reaching at stuff. And so I actually, in my early 20s, found Tumblr and body positivity. And from there, kind of started pulling myself out. The power of the internet. <laughs> I <laughs> well, and I say it was probably in my early early 20s, but it was probably more like 25, 26, because I don't even think I had like a regular computer with me until then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, going back to sort of when the disordered eating started, what do you think was the inciting incident that kind of kicked it off? And then when you did finally start to get exposed to body positivity, like what shifted for you? So uh, when I was... I'll be very honest. I think that a lot of this stuff is stuff that I will be working through for the rest of my life. I think that that's the thing we have to sometimes come to peace with, you know, and I am not sure what kind of started my disordered eating stuff. I I have a feeling that it was some sort of trauma event that I can't remember. I have some, you know, some vague memories about it. But I think that it was more than anything, it was being an anxious kid who just couldn't get control and who didn't know how to communicate what I needed to the people around me. My dad is a school psychologist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My mom's a therapist, so I know like how that is. Yep, I can hear it in your voice. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I think that even with these, with people around you who have infinite resources, sometimes those things just kind of fall through the cracks or people sometimes with the most resources, I think, think, no, oh, well, we've done everything right. There couldn't possibly be any anything wrong with this one. Yes. <laughs> you know? 
And I think that as a kid, I just didn't know how to talk to anyone. And whether, I mean, geez, we can go into a whole thing about whether or not that was me as a kid or my environment around me. (laughs) Right. Pressure not to talk, not to open up. Yeah. And I do think that as a child, I was just really grasping for control of something in my life. And food is where I found it. Yeah. And when you found body positivity, did that start to shift? Like, did you feel like you were starting to have a locus of control more within yourself? Yeah. You know, I think that the first book I read about disordered eating was something like food, the good girl's drug. Oh, I know the woman who wrote that. She's a friend of mine. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was, I mean, it was a great book. (laughs) And I don't know what really, I believe that it was someone within the body positive community had talked about this book. And I was like, wow, that's kind of an, that's an interesting thing to think about. I wonder if there's something there. So I, of course, buy the book. And it's interesting that you can make it all the way to, you know, 25, 26 years old, and you've never heard of binge eating disorder. And you only knew of eating disorders in like restrictive ways, right? But I read this book and it became abundantly clear to me that something was going on. (laughs) And that I had no clue what that something was, but that maybe I should reach out and seek a little bit of help for it. Yeah. It is so interesting, right? That eating disorders are portrayed as this restrictive thing and they look a certain way and it's only sort of someone who looks emaciated is considered to quote unquote fit the bill. And that just is so detrimental to anyone who falls outside of that stereotypical look, which is most everyone, right? right? And even people who get to that point, it's like there's so many years usually that they could have been helped sooner, but because they weren't at that point yet, they didn't get help. And so then it's so entrenched by the time it does get to that point that it's very difficult to crawl your way back out of it at that point. Yeah. And, you know, when I was, gosh, I was probably 20 or 21, there was a point in time where my mom took me, she went to the doctor with me because of course, when I was gaining weight, people were alarmed, but not in the way of like, when you <laughs> you want to take someone to the doctor, right? People would just be like, well, she's gaining weight, you know, whatever. But when I would go through these restrictive phases, I would lose weight rapidly. And at one point, my mom went to the doctor with me and she was showing concern and saying, Carissa has lost X amount in this short amount of time. And the doctor kind of looked at me and said, well, I mean, yeah, you could stand to lose a little bit. Oh, Oh. you know, I, I, I can remember my mom looking at me like, kind of with tears in her eyes a little bit, you know, and just, I mean, she knew at that point, I couldn't really get out of bed. I wasn't having relationships with anyone, friends, family. And I mean, I could just see her heartbreaking because she thought 
Well, maybe maybe Carissa is having bad experiences with doctors because she's just not saying the right thing. And she goes with me and it's I mean, it's really in her face. And I think that was really shocking for her. And I think it was shocking for me. And I think that that really led me to think that medical professionals just won't be on my side, will never be on my side, you know, will never know or believe me in any way. And that's kind of a scary place to get to. Yeah, it's like you lose faith in something that's so essential, right? Like healthcare is is sort of, I mean, it's a human right. And right. to feel like people are pitted against you and not gonna not gonna help you is really terrifying. <laughs> yes, it really, really is. And you know, especially when even when we're talking about me at 20 or 21, you know, you're just a kid. I mean you don't know what you're supposed to say to people. You don't know, you don't know anything about medical things, you know, and you're just kind of grasping and hoping someone will help you and to have someone look at you and go, Oh no, you're doing fine. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a big blow. Huge blow, especially since I'm sure you sort of knew inside, right? What was going on? Like what was going on in your mind? The fact that you couldn't get out of bed or have relationships, probably didn't feel good and wasn't what you knew in your heart was right for you. Right. That's the thing is that even with all of these things, when you don't have the words for them, you still know that something's not right. So you go in and you're like, I know something's not right. And people continue to ask you to give them the language of what's happening. And you're like, no, no, that's what I came to you for. <laughs> Yeah, that's such an interesting point. And I, I very much identify with that, too, in my own eating disorder history, because I also had an eating disorder that was characterized by restricting and binging. And I never got to the point of emaciation where anybody thought there was anything wrong, quote unquote, from the outside. But I knew something was wrong. I definitely felt it, too. And it was also in my early 20s. And I just had no language for it and no understanding of how to navigate the medical community or anything like that. And so I would reach out to doctors or therapists and I'd be like, my mom was the only one basically who who commented on my weight loss because I had lost a fairly significant amount of weight and, and said like, are you okay? Like maybe this is why you're not having your period because that was kind of how it all started was like I stopped having my period and I right. started going to doctors to try to find the answer. And I was of course very dismissive of her for that. Like, no, no, it can't possibly be that. But, you know, <laughs> then I would go to doctors or therapists and be like, well, my mom's worried about me because this, because somewhere in me, I knew, yeah, that's kind of weird. Right. And even though I was yeah. fighting her and defensive to her face, I was like, what do you think about this? You know, and trying to get some kind of professional perspective on it. And like, I had one therapist be like, oh, you couldn't possibly have an eating disorder. You're not thin enough, you know? And so that uh -huh. just like sent me back into my shell for years, you know? I was yeah. not going to be opening up to another therapist after that for quite a while. Absolutely. And, you know, that's funny because I think I feel like I did the same thing where I would I would almost go into doctors and be like, uh, I'm just here because, you know, my mom and dad are worried about me. And I can't I mean, you know, if if the two of us have done that sort of thing, I can't imagine the number of other young people who do that and don't get any answers that they need. 
Right. And that there's something in them, too, that's like, maybe I should take this concern that my loved ones are expressing and like voice that to a professional and, you know, see if there's something there. Right. And it's like your intuition really is telling you there's something wrong. And that's why you're that's why you're asking for help or just cracking the door open for help even. And so for a provider to just like slam it shut in your face is so detrimental. Yeah. And I think that it can set you back multitudes. I mean, it can set you back so far in recovery when you just don't feel like you have anyone medically to even lean on, you know? Yeah, completely. Nobody who gets it. Yeah, I think that you, especially as an adolescent and a person in your 20s, you always kind of believe nobody gets it. And with, especially with any kind of like mental health things, you desperately need someone to get it. Or you just need someone to tell you that they see you. You know, you even if they don't get it, you just need to know that someone like sees your being as a human and knows that like shit is tough. You know, yes. I mean, I feel like I, even at some point, if any doctor would have said to me, way to go on your weight loss, but I see that you're not very happy. Like if, if a doctor had said literally anything alluding to the fact that they might care about what I was going through as a human being, I feel like that would have given me some hope, but there wasn't even, there wasn't even that. <laughs> oh, I know. Cause mental health is not considered part of overall health, right? People you know, medical providers are so trained to just focus on the physical, not even look at the mental. Yeah. So how did you end up finally getting help? Did you, did you find a provider who you could open up to at some point or did you kind of muddle through on your own for a while? So at some point, I think I was 26 or 27. I hadn't had my period, which is kind of the thing, I think, for a lot of women. But I hadn't had my period in probably two or three years. And my mom was just kind of like, we need to get you to see somebody. So I started going to a local clinic. And this local clinic was actually created for people who were low income. And since I was older than I must have been over 26 because I was off of my parents' insurance. And I went to this clinic that I qualified for because, of course, I didn't have a job because I couldn't work because I was such a wreck. And I went to this clinic and the clinic actually had this really extensive checklist for things you were going through in your life. And they had all new patients meet with a social worker just to check in. That's awesome. Yeah, it's so awesome. I mean, I, I really feel like that practice is kind of what saved my life. And it's amazing what just a little bit of social intervention can do. Oh, yes. But I met with the social worker and she was kind of like, so this is what your chart says. These are some of the things you're going through. 
I see that, you know, you're feeling a little bit anxious and that you say you haven't had a job for a little while. And that was kind of her red flag. And of course, I'm like, oh, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. We just need to figure out what's going on with my period. That's all. (laughs) I love laying in bed for 18 hours a day. (laughs) And of course, the social worker's like, Uh, I think that maybe we should just set up an appointment. (laughs) And I'm like, well, fine. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, somewhere in me, I'm like, yes, please. God, someone talk to me. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I show up for my next appointment with the social worker and I show up for another one and another one. And, you know, at some point we kind of realized that maybe there was some food stuff going on, maybe a lot of body stuff going on. And from there, that social worker referred me to a therapist and to get me on a treatment plan and in a group setting where I could talk to more people. Mm, That's huge. Like to get that appropriate referral for eating issues is almost unheard of. You know, like it's surprisingly (laughs) rare given that eating disorders are considered a mental health condition and like even, you know, many therapists will sort of ignore the signs. So it's very cool that you found one who got it. Yeah, I feel very, very grateful. I actually, before I started blogging and stuff, I was going to school for social work because of this human being, because I decided, you know, once I was kind of healing, I was like, uh, that's what I want to do. That is, I, you know, I, I realized that social work is not always so rewarding, but <laughs> that really, it made me very hopeful. And so I actually went to school for a few years before my blogging career took off. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about your blogging career for sure and and sort of how did that dovetail with your treatment and recovery like where did it fit in when you started the blog? My blogging career, I actually like I said I was on Tumblr and that's kind of where I learned about body positivity and uh, when I started treatment for ED, I was just getting into this community on Tumblr and learning what body positivity was. It was the first time that I was introduced to the idea that fat people could be happy or like themselves in any way, shape or form. And it had a huge, huge impact on me. I was on Tumblr, I think for like three or four years and got very involved in the fat community there. I wasn't, the funny thing is I wasn't necessarily what I would consider fat when I got into body positivity, but I was on this road to recovery from a restrictive binging kind of eating disorder. And I didn't know what was going to happen with my body, but I knew that I had been up, down and all over the place. And I wanted to mentally get in a space where I could accept whatever happened to my body or wherever my landing point was. And so I was on Tumblr for several years and got involved in the fat community and started just kind of learning about body positivity. And one day I was like, hey, 
I think maybe I'll talk about this publicly. (laughs) (laughs) I had felt like I was in a place mentally where I really liked myself, which doesn't sound like a big deal. You know, I think that I think that for a lot of people just saying like, yeah, I like myself is like (laughs) second nature, you know, like, yeah, of course I like myself. But I, after experience in not liking yourself so strongly, you really can see how important liking yourself is and how rare it is really too. Yeah, I have that experience too. Like I spent a long ass time not liking myself and now it does feel second nature. It's almost weird to think like, God, how sad that I spent so long really not liking myself. And like now it's just... I'm just content, you know, like not that things aren't hard sometimes, but I just have this baseline of like, yeah, I'm okay. I'm not a bad person. I'm good. You know? Yes. Yes. I'm not a bad person. That's, I mean, that I know that when we say it, it sounds so simple, but it's such a concept that can be so difficult to wrap your head around. And I think that so many of us grow up thinking I am bad. You know, like just inherently, like I am not a great person. And to come out of that and realize that like, uh, actually, we're doing pretty good is is a huge deal. It's revolutionary. Like it really is. It is. Because I mean, and also like growing up when you absorb that message, usually it's to try to make sense of something outside yourself that's going wrong, right? Because as kids, it's like, if bad shit happens to you, you're, you're sort of like, you can't comprehend that things outside of you, like the adult world would be bad or something that would be wrong with it. And so you sort of turn it in on yourself and you say, well, I must be the bad one. And to be able to sort of reclaim your goodness, I think requires getting angry and getting aware of all the bad stuff that actually happens, like the bad stuff that happened to you and the bad stuff that continues to happen in the world and outside of yourself and like the injustice in the world, you know? So I feel like yes. it's it actually is like such a huge mountain to climb or such a, a huge, I'm trying to like not use ableist language because I've realized like all of these metaphors of journeys require like people having legs and walking and like it's <laughs> Everybody gets to go on this journey. It's not an ableist right. journey, but whatever it is, it's a huge thing to accomplish, right? It's a huge barrier to, you know, be able to get to a place where you like yourself. So like, yeah, saying you like yourself is so simple, but it requires so much work leading up to it for many of us. It does. It absolutely does. And I think that as much as, you know, I kind of tease about this and I (laughs) joke that, you know, I've basically made my career around just liking myself. It's, that's the truth. You know, (laughs) I, I was just a girl who kind of liked herself. I wouldn't even say I completely liked myself. I just kind of liked myself. And I was like, Hey, I think I'm going to make a blog about what it's like to start liking yourself and trying to unlearn and uncover all of the shit you realize about culture and about the world as you start to really like yourself. Mm. I love that. Was that the birth of Fat Girl Flow? Was it that incarnation at that point? It was. Mm. (laughs) I think that when I first started it, I really wanted to, I knew I wanted to do fashion stuff for 
most of my adult life because, you know, when you have anxiety and agoraphobia and an eating disorder that makes you not want to be social and you spend a lot of time by yourself, you learn a lot of things about the internet. (laughs) And one of the things that I became really good at in that time was, I mean, I became like a Rolodex of plus size clothing stores. And I had a ton of information in my head about where you could shop for plus size clothing. So I knew that I wanted to take something like a plus size fashion blog and start talking about how we live by these rules that are completely arbitrary and made up in plus size fashion and how we can break those down and start like dressing our truest self. Mm. I love that. Say more about that. Like what are what are some of the rules that hold people back and what does it mean to dress like your truest self? I think that when I was going through a lot of the kind of self-hatred stuff, you know, everything that you kind of feel in your 20s, trying to conform, trying to be fashionable, trying to look like everyone else while also not quite standing out. Like you want, you want to, you want to stand out, but also fit in. And it's like (laughs) this really kind of confusing time, you know? And I realized that I at 30 years old, had no clue what I wanted to wear. I would look in fashion magazines and I would look at stores and I would be like, I think I want to wear this, but I think I want to wear that because it's an A-line dress and I've been told that my body type looks good in that style. And I wanted to start thinking more critically about those things that I was thinking. What's the word for when you think something as a afterthought, you know, like, oh, I love that skirt. Well, wait, do I really love it? Or do I love it? Because this is what I get the most compliments in. And why am I getting those compliments? Am I getting those compliments because people actually like how I look in it? Or am I getting those compliments because that's what I look slimmest in? And trying to deconstruct all of that in my brain to get down to the part where I go, yes, I 100% like this piece of clothing. I want this piece of clothing to be on my body. This piece of clothing represents me, which is kind of, you know, that's kind of a lot of pressure to put on your clothes, but (laughs) (laughs) it's the perfect item. (laughs) I mean, that's so interesting, that idea of deconstructing like the received wisdom about fit, because I think it's so hard to separate, right? Fashion rules and guidelines are all about like looking slim or changing the shape of your body, like changing the way the shape appears if the shape is not conforming to this one narrow standard. Like, you know, if you have wide hips, do this. If you have a small chest, do that. All of this stuff where it's like sort of just trying to keep you in line with this one ideal. And I definitely find myself doing that too. Like I'm like, well, can't wear a drop waist because I have a long torso or whatever. Like, you know, right. just these things where I'm like, who said though? Like who said? Why not why not even try it on? Like, why not see how it looks? You know, and instead right. of just cutting off from this line of, you know, this potential line of like interesting clothing. 
Yeah. And I think that when we, when we start to think about what we really like, it can get a little bit overwhelming. You know, that deconstruction of it all can become very quickly overwhelming. And so I try to do it in, you know, kind of small edible pieces, (laughs) manageable (laughs) pieces so that everyone is not, I know that I have literally sat in a store and like I've sat in a Target dressing room and just like sat on the bench, like staring at the wall for 10 minutes. Like, (laughs) oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm getting this deep with a pair of jeans. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I hope that me getting that deep with that pair of jeans is (laughs) somehow helping someone else kind of sum it all up in their brain much quicker. (laughs) Totally. I mean, that's what it is, right? It's like you're blazing a trail of showing a different way to approach fashion. And people are definitely going to benefit from that and definitely going to respond to that because you're putting out something new into the world that really hasn't existed before. Or there's, you know, there's like lots of people doing fat fashion in cool ways, but your unique take is you, you know, and your experience of like going deep with that pair of jeans. Nobody else has had that experience. That is yours, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that you know, this boom with plus size fashion and with body positivity kind of taking over plus size fashion and stuff is because people really are looking at what is being put out for us and saying, hey, we're we're smarter than that. You know, we see what you're doing and we see all of these black clothes. We see all of these cuts that you're giving us and we expect more. We want more. We demand more. And we are a market that should be catered to because we're a huge majority of people. And I think that, you know, I think that with that power of, of course, consumerism behind it, uh, it really gets heard. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I think that's that's so important to recognize, too, that like it is a huge percentage of the population. It's a majority. So like why are fashion retailers not getting on board in mass? You know, it really should be that plus size is the norm and straight sizes are like only available some places, you know, (laughs) (laughs) wouldn't wouldn't that be a world? (laughs) Yes, it would be such a world. Yeah, but we in my town, I think, oh, I think there are two places you can buy plus size clothing. And one of them is a Target. (laughs) The chain stores seem to do a better job of of stocking plus size than some of the smaller stores, it seems like. Yeah, we have I live in a great little town that has a flourishing little local area and there are no places that carry plus sizes and you kind of look at that and go I mean of course I look at it and go well someone should open a plus size store (laughs) but you absolutely look at it and just go what is everyone so afraid of and what is it about this market that has made it so untouchable for so long right yeah what do you think that is I think that we have always, plus size consumers have always been looked at as a pass-through market. I think that people have always looked at, especially plus size women, as people who are just making a stop in the plus size section. They're not there for life. I think that brands really look at us as 
something that is not aspirational. Straight sizes are aspirational. Straight sizes are where people want to be. Of course, fat phobia and our culture play a huge part in that. And I think that finally people are saying, no, I live in this fat body and I expect to be living in this fat body for quite some time. And I would like to dress it and I would like you to be making those clothes for it. Right. That's such an important point. I think like it makes so much sense that this idea of like there's a thin person inside every fat person or whatever bullshit, you know, like the Oprah thing that pervades our culture and sort of keeps people from dressing the body they have now or embracing the body they have now in lots of ways. And it, it, I think the sort of emergence of better options for plus size people is like such an important shift because consumers are demanding more. Like you said, like, it's not just, Hey, I want to wear this sack until I lose weight. It's like, no, I've, I've, (laughs) I've done all the diets. I've been there, done that. Like that led me down a terrible road and now I'm ready to accept my body and dress, you know, the way that feels comfortable and good and beautiful and, you know, embrace the body that I have right now. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, why wouldn't we, you know, why wouldn't we want to wear something? I I wonder how many people are going to work every single day and thinking, you know what? No, I'm fine in this one outfit that I have. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just don't think that that happens. And I recognize that I recognize that as a market, you know, I think that people like you and I and people within the body positive community are still very much kind of a fringe group. Of course, I when I talk to you and when I talk to other bloggers, I feel very much like we're the norm because that's who I've surrounded myself with. But the fact of the matter is the idea of body positivity and fat acceptance is still fairly new. And as brands start promoting this idea that you can feel great in your clothes, you know, as much as I don't want to love consumerism and capitalism, it does drive our culture to kind of take this shift and say, yeah, you know what? I do get to wear these clothes and I should be able to expect this out of a brand. And yeah, you're right. I am worth having more than one outfit to wear to work. Yes. Amen to that. And it's interesting, like the idea of feeling comfortable in your clothes, feeling good and thinking you look good in your clothes is such a privilege, right? It's like that that's an aspect of thin privilege that we don't really talk about enough. Even the idea of just like wearing clothes that are not too tight and constricting. My clients or podcast listeners will ask questions like, how do I stop feeling so uncomfortable in my body? I feel uncomfortable in my body at this weight and it can't be right. You know, this weight can't be right for me because I feel so uncomfortable. And when I sort of probe on that question, oftentimes it'll be, actually my clothes just feel really tight. You know, that's like a really big reason that people say they feel uncomfortable and they're blaming it on their weight and they're blaming it on their size and thinking that they should be able to feel less uncomfortable by magically shrinking their body, which we know is not actually possible in a sustainable way, right? right? And it's like the sort of oftentimes resistance to buying new clothes and buying more comfortable clothes is very real. Yes. One of the biggest things I learned 
early on in my body positive journey is that my body and the feelings I have about being in it are learned. And we, we so much don't, we don't teach fat people how to interact with their body. I was in a yoga class one time and, you know, as silly as it sounds, I was sitting in a certain pose and my yoga teacher came over and said, Hey, have you tried moving your belly just a little bit, like picking it up and moving your flesh to the side? And I kind of looked at her like, what are you talking about? Why, why are you saying flesh to me? Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, she was right. No one had ever even like the idea that I could touch my stomach and move it to the side. If it was like slightly uncomfortable was completely foreign to me that it had not even crossed my mind. And I had lived in my fat body for probably two years at that point. (laughs) And, you know, we really don't teach people that you can make accommodations for your body and that you can learn how to live within your body and be kind to it and accommodate it without thinking that you need to change it. Yeah. And that that's okay, that that's not shameful, right? That right. like the, the need or the, because we all have needs, we all have physical needs, right? We all have things that are different than everybody else's body that, that are unique to our bodies or physical limitations or disabilities or what have you that are unique to us and to figure out a way to accommodate them and make yourself feel more comfortable really is everyone's right. It's just we're shamed for not meeting this cultural norm. But actually, we all have things that don't meet the cultural norm. We all have things that we could be accommodating ourselves better if we just knew how. And I think you're so right that like maybe back going back again to this idea that being fat is a transitional phase, that a fat body is one that you're going to be out of soon. So you don't need to worry about how to sort of navigate it does a real disservice to people. Because they don't learn how to feel more comfortable. Yes, 100%. I think that when we teach people that being plus size, being fat is just a phase, we don't ever take a moment and say to our body, okay, how how do we settle in? How do we get comfortable here? Yeah. I know that a big conversation that we have in the fat community is also centered around kind of our obsession and of course other people's obsession with fat people being healthy and at some point you have to look at people and go everybody needs accommodations i don't know a single person who doesn't need something special from the people who love them or even from doctors from you know from everyone we all have different needs for our bodies whether we are whether you are the epitome of health or not we you have something <laughs> we all do yes and we don't think about that you know i know it's so true we try to erase that and we we try to say like Everybody who's healthy should fit these criteria instead of there's a lot of different ways health can look and be in the world, right? Health is not one way. Health is not one thing. Like we all have areas of 
more greater or less health, right? We all have parts of our, you know, like chronic disease conditions or parts of our medical history or mental health history that are still with us that maybe are not functioning optimally. And then other parts of our lives and bodies that are functioning optimally for us for now, you know, of course, we're all going to break down at some point, right? We're all, you know, (laughs) none of us is going to be perfectly functional forever. It's all going to start breaking down at some point. But yeah, like, why is it that we are conditioned to feel such shame when anything isn't working and think that it's our fault, there's something wrong with us. I think it goes back to healthism, right? And the idea that health is a moral obligation, that we should all be pursuing or in perfect health. And if we're not, it's like a failing on our part. Meanwhile, perfect health doesn't exist, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think that part of my body positive journey has been to really examine my thoughts surrounding health and surrounding differently abled bodies and how they interact with the world. I think that, I mean, I know I'm not the only fat person who has been asked over and over again, oh, but aren't you afraid that you won't be able to chase after your kids. And while that is, I, God, the amount of times I've heard that question, it's like, oh. I, I should really, I should really write something that I can just, you know, regurgitate back to people. Yeah, um, totally. Play a little <laughs> clip or something. <laughs> like, here's right. my take on this. <laughs> right. Because, okay, while I understand and respect that maybe that is scary for some people, when it boils down to it, I can think this through, you know, I can stare at my target wall for hours thinking about this. But when it boils down to it, people who cannot run after their children also have wonderful, fulfilling, worthwhile lives. People who have bodies that don't do certain things can still be incredibly happy and loved individuals. And not only can they still be, they very frequently are. Which, yeah, fuck yeah. Like, it's it's totally ableist and just erasing all kinds of diversity to say that health means being able to chase after your kids. And there's, again, this this sort of extra tax or something on being, you know, it's like you have to pay a toll for living in a fat body that you have to deal and people in larger bodies have to deal with this kind of bullshit questioning. Whereas I have knee problems, like I'm not able to run that much, you know, like nobody's asking me like, are you afraid that you're not going to be able to run after your kids? You know, like, (laughs) I'm fine. It'll be okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is that Honestly, I've been an athlete most of my life. And when I need to run, I can, you know, and I know plenty of people who are much smaller than me who actually cannot physically do a lot of things. And that doesn't make me better or worse or anything than other fat people. Um, It's just that no one has any idea what your ability is by just looking at you. And absolutely, even if your abilities are less than what another person has. It doesn't mean that you have a bad life. There are so many people who are differently abled than so many of us who are so happy. Yes. It's not a prerequisite for for a good life, right? It's not a, like having 
a certain kind of ability level or looking a certain way or being in a certain size body or whatever, certain skin color, certain sexual orientation, all of that stuff like is not a prerequisite for having a good life. Right. Even though it's made out to be. Right. I think that that's a hard concept to fully grasp. I mean, you know, when we talk about it, it sounds very easy, but that is that is a difficult thing to really come to terms with within our culture because we do assign so much morality to it. And we do say that this is what is worth a good life and this is what isn't, you know. I read an article several months ago that talked about the kind of morality around death and how we all want to be that person at the end of our life who everyone stands around and goes, oh, they lived such a good life and oh, they should have lived longer and oh, they died too young. And we all have these weird concepts of what make us a full and complete human being. And the truth is, it doesn't matter. We're all going, we're all headed the same place. <laughs> no matter what, yeah. we're all going to the same place. Totally. This bus only has one stop. <laughs> and I, I mean, the scariness of that is completely valid. And I, I understand why people are so hesitant to just accept that. I really do. I sometimes when I see kind of fitness culture and stuff like that. I mean, I get it. I see why you're trying to not do this thing. It is very scary. It is very scary to think about the complexity of leaving the earth, but it it's going to happen. Yeah. And I think being just aware of it and sort of being able to have some humor about it, but also like acknowledging that it is sad right it's it's all of it it's like morale yeah. or mortality is it's funny that i almost said morality <laughs> mortality <laughs> i mean there is a lot of conflation there but yeah mortality is a complex issue that we don't like to address but i think not looking at it head on a lot of the time can actually lead to these weird channelings of the the fear of mortality like into healthism and fitness culture right like that desire to sort of cheat death or outrun your fate right or live longer like the right. you know life trying to extend your lifespan or whatever it's all related to this fear that's so natural and so understandable that we we don't want to die we all want to survive you know we want to live a uh, long happy life but if we don't sort of look at that head on and, and recognize like, and we're all going to die at some point and we have to, <laughs> we have to accept that. And like, maybe it's not worth it to sort of trick ourselves into thinking we can live forever by doing things quote unquote perfectly with regard to health or eating or whatever we think is going to make us live forever because it's not. And it's actually going to diminish the quality of the life we do have. Right. Well, and <laughs> you know, we, we think about, I, I see so many people who talk about how they can understand how these religions and stuff like that are just kind of a way to occupy our time um, or, you know, and the truth is like, we're all in the church of something. I understand the complexity of like the human condition and needing something to 
take your mind off of that impending reality. But we have to constantly ask ourselves, is this really the thing? Is is this the thing I want to spend my time doing? <laughs> totally. That's, yeah, I think that's a really important question and so valid in just this this dance of leaving diet culture behind and recovering from eating issues. Like, just kind of continually asking yourself, is this how I really want to be spending my life? Right. Going back to your values and what you feel is important. And that's going to look different for everybody. But I think I've been using this metaphor recently of the life thief, like diet culture is a life thief because it steals our life, you know, and it takes yeah. away the limited time and the precious time that we have on this planet. And like, you know, don't let it steal your life, right? We need to band together as a community and like help each other not get our lives stolen away by this thing. It absolutely is. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious your your thoughts on sort of how to reclaim the parts of your life that were lost to thoughts about food and your body and all of that stuff. Because I know when we met in person, we were talking about our husbands and our lives and our houses and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, you seem to have such a rich, full life now and a lot going on that's really positive and happy. So how did you how did you get to that place? It didn't happen quickly. I, <laughs> I always want to make sure that I preface that with it is still happening. It didn't happen quickly and it is still happening and I am still learning. And I know that a lot of people can sometimes look at body positive role models and go, I need to be that right now. I want to feel that good right this second. <laughs> and I mean, I am still very much working on myself and kind of unlearning a lot of things. And I probably will be for ever. <laughs> but I think that the thing that really, really made the biggest difference in my life is deciding on what my values are as a human being and having a good grasp on who I am and what I believe to be true in the world. I think that this is something that, you know, body positivity is very popular now with much younger people. And for me, I found it in my 20s. And I commend younger people who are doing this because with the emotionality of being an adolescent, of being in your 20s, of dating, oh my God, of dating. No. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. It's a lot to think about how do I turn this into something that makes me a happy human being. But I think that as we grow and as we age, we fall into our values and we solidify them. And we also learn about the flexibility of our values and how what we might value today is not going to be what we value tomorrow and how that is okay. And I think that when I started really feeling out my values and solidifying them. <laughs> that was when I could finally kind of see past the bullshit and go, okay, I live today. I I live this day. 
I cannot keep living my life thinking that something else is going to happen. I can't keep waiting. I can't wait for a new body. I can't wait for different circumstances. I have to do this today. And sometimes that's a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, when you are battling an eating disorder and you very truly cannot get out of bed saying, these are my circumstances, that doesn't feel good. That's that doesn't that's not super validating. So at a lot of points in my life, part of what I have validated is that I just need to chill. You know, there have been moments in my life where I have said, this is too hard. I'm going to not think I'm going to work in adaptive denial about this <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of say okay, I'm going to live the best I can every day and knowing that my best is going to change every single day. Mm, Yeah. And that's such an important point about recognizing how hard it is to accept your circumstances when your circumstances are not feeling good. Because it's hard to have acceptance when what you really want is hope for something to get better. And I think maybe when when you get to a point where things are okay enough on a day-to-day basis, then that acceptance of this is all I have, I'm living for today kind of starts to resonate more. But like adaptive denial is totally a valid strategy, right? It is. It is. Especially adaptive versus maladaptive, right? You know, when you can figure out what the adaptive, like distracting yourself with whatever positive or neutral way of means of distraction that you have available instead of going to the eating disorder or going to another maladaptive coping mechanism, like that's progress and success in itself. Just making that different choice once is is already... A huge progress. Yeah. And I think that people don't give enough credit to just surviving sometimes. One of the biggest parts of my body positive journey is just surviving the shitty parts, just being okay with the days where I'm not okay. And just being able to survive the circumstances sometimes, you know, and I think that a lot of body positivity and a lot of fat acceptance kind of exists in this world where we all have the privilege to practice these things, right? I mean, it is a privilege to sit around and think about your body. That and that's that's a hard thing to kind of come to terms with, I think, but a lot of people don't even have they don't have the time, you know, they don't have the time to sit around and think about their bodies and what their bodies are going through. And I think that at that point, when you're in that space, just surviving it and getting through to the next day is sometimes the best thing you can do for yourself. Yeah. Just surviving and being there for another day. Yeah. It's huge. I agree. It is. And when I think about my lifelong journey um (laughs) there I mean I would say that half of it was spent doing that and we don't talk about that part a lot we talk about a lot of the active parts you know we talk about a lot of the parts where people are actively participating in their recovery and where people are really 
doing the thing, you know, I mean, people <laughs> like me who have, who have blogs and are constantly talking about our fashion and stuff like that. We get a lot of shine, but there's, there's a lot of shine to be had in just making it through. And even for people who listen to your podcast, you know, I mean, for a very long time, I was just a person reading some stuff about body positivity. You know, that was it. I was just surviving and taking in a couple paragraphs a day. And there is a lot to be said for that. There is a lot to be said for just making it through and trying to seek out resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for the folks listening who are going through that now where it's like, you know, put on a podcast and just sit or lie down and be with this information, like that's huge already. That's a huge deal. Yeah. So yeah, you're so right. Like we really need to give ourselves and everyone credit for just doing the things that help us survive through what can be a very difficult journey. Yeah. Mm. This is, I'm like tearing up. <laughs> it's really moving to me thinking about that. So yeah. Oh, oh my God. I could talk to you forever. This is so wonderful. But I want to be conscious of our time and let the listeners know where people can find you and all of your stuff on the internet. So tell us about that. Tell us about your blog and where people can find you. You can find me at fatgirlflow.com on Instagram at fatgirlflow. I am trying to use Twitter more and I am at fatgirlfreedom on Twitter. I generally, oh, I also have a YouTube channel. (laughs) I actually do a lot of things on my YouTube channel. I talk about body positivity and I do a bunch of plus size fashion stuff and my YouTube channel is youtube.com slash fatgirlflow and I try to put out new content either on YouTube or on the blog a couple times a week. I love it. I love your blog. I think I first discovered you through a video on YouTube and it was just so wonderful. And I like delved into your site and just love all of it. I think that one of the first times I had listened to your podcast, you were talking about, it was definitely about intuitive eating. And I was like, oh my goodness, who is this Christy Harrison? (laughs) (laughs) I have to listen to to 20 of these podcasts. (laughs) Oh, that's so sweet. I love it. Just fangirling out over each other over here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're the best. I'm so glad I got to talk with you for the podcast and hope we'll get to talk again soon. We will. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest, Carissa Enneking, for being here. And thanks to you for listening. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, head over to christyharrison.com slash 123 for episode 123. That's christyharrison.com slash 123. This episode was brought to you by M.M. LaFleur. M.M. LaFleur takes the work out of dressing for work by offering luxurious, pragmatic clothing and personal styling to today's busy professional woman. Each M.M. LaFleur customer works one-on-one with an M.M. stylist to build her work wardrobe in a systematic and personalized way. All you have to do is take a quick online survey and an MM stylist will send you a bento box of four to six wardrobe staples and accessories handpicked just for you. Once your bento arrives, you have four days to try everything on. Then keep what you like and send the rest back. It's completely free to try and because they're not a subscription service, there's no commitment. To try a bento yourself and help support the podcast while you're at it, visit mmbento.com. That's mmbento.com. 
If you want my help getting started on your anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. It's a bonus podcast episode with my favorite practical tips for starting out with intuitive eating and health at every size. So you can get it at christyharrison.com slash strategies. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. Or if you're on the go, you can text the word seven strategies, all one word, to the phone number 44222. That's the number seven and the word strategies all together to the phone number 44222. Food Psych is edited and engineered by the amazing folks at Podcast Fast Track. Our administrative and community manager is Ashley Soroya, and our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. 